please be aware that this episode of the podcast contains a discussion about how rape and sexual violence are reported in the media and that some may find the subject matter upsetting or disturbing. Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think you must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. One of the biggest sports stories this week and it caused barely a ripple as an Irish athlete has been accused of raping a woman in Dublin. Though everyone now seems to know who's at the centre of the allegations, no formal complaint has been made and the alleged perpetrator has not been named. And as we know from the Belfast rape trial earlier this year, sexual violence stories coming before the courts can bring out the worst in both social and mainstream media. We'll get to the mainstream media in a minute, but first a cautionary tale. Everything you tweet or post on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat accusing someone of something could technically see you find yourself before a judge for libel. It could also see you deny a defendant a right to a fair trial, which is a terrible thing for an innocent man or woman, and even worse if they're actually guilty and the case gets thrown out. Good luck explaining that to the judge, the victim, or perhaps the wrongly convicted defendant. Put simply, your smartphone in these cases is like a hand grenade. Once you pull the pin, it has the potential to destroy lives indiscriminately and you cannot predict what the consequences of using it might be. There is a reason the mainstream media doesn't name either the accused or the victim in such cases until there's a conviction and your Snapchat account doesn't give you the right to do so either. That said, the mainstream media doesn't always cover itself in glory, and in the post-MeToo world we live in, there will undoubtedly be more high-profile cases that come before the courts. But what are the rules that govern media reporting of sexual violence cases? And how does our reporting impact the victims and the defendants? And can we do anything to improve it? I called Nolene Blackwell, who is a lawyer and chief executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, to put the media in the dock. So, in general, rape and other um, serious crime like that is reported very much as a story to catch the attention of the reader or the listener. Um, and so is often recorded in quite a sensationalist way or from, from the perspective of the victim, from the perspective of most of the journalists in the Irish media. I do believe that they are trying to record it as correctly as they can. So so they're doing that, but at the same time, they're obviously going to focus on the things that make it into a good story. And in terms of rape and sexual assault, you have many of the elements of a good story as well as a very sad story. And the good story is uh, it is that focus on a, a story featuring sex and violence. Um, and these are things that often mean that the bits that are reported out of a long court case are going to be the, the bits that tell the most spectacular story. The trouble about that is so often that the victim gets forgotten within it. But, but to be fair, I think our um, broadcast media, our traditional media, uh, do observe boundaries whereby they report it accurately. And to be fair to our courts, 
uh, when it gets to court, our courts will put limits on uh, and will object if they see uh, a case being poorly reported. I think the uh, the advent of social media and people speculating on social media um, and that has changed the way that rape cases are reported because social media sends out things so quickly, um, can often make things inaccurate, uh, but also just gets out the bit that they consider the juiciest part of the case. Um, there's a lot made, of course, of anonymity. And just I'm talking to you from Stockholm in Sweden. And what happens here is that nobody is identified, neither the victim nor the alleged perpetrator is identified until such time as there's a conviction. So yes. if the person isn't convicted of the crime in question, their name never makes it out in the media. Yes. Now, there's two things about that. One, I think it's a good idea because however abhorrent some of the behaviour around these cases may be, that at least people walk away from the whole thing if they're found not guilty with yes. what is left of their good name. But also yes. to me, it would seem that um, I was just reading before I started talking to you here I was reading about Lavinia Kerwick the famous case from the early 1990s where she was raped and the gentleman in question was basically given a year a suspended nine year sentence they came back a year later and Mm -hmm. the man was basically never in prison at all never served a day in prison for that crime and she went onto the national airwaves in Ireland she called a show called the Jerry Ryan show and she named herself and what happened at that point was and I know know you're very familiar with the case but she became the face of of victims of sexual violence at that point. Do you think there's anything to be said for victims coming forward, for naming themselves, for putting themselves out there? Or is there still this this aspect of shame that prevents them from doing that? All right, so just the situation in Ireland is not unlike the situation in Sweden. In Ireland too, neither the victim nor the person accused is named until the case is over and there's a conviction. And sometimes the person convicted will not be named if it would lead to the identification of the victim of the crime. <clears throat> so we we have we have that system. Now it is really interesting, it's very different to the system that's there in Northern Ireland, where once a person is charged, they are named. And there's a big debate. Because while uh, it is uh, an awful thing to be accused of the crime of rape, the fact that the victim is not, or the fact that the accused is not identified means that people are being treated very differently to people who are accused of other type of crime. It is also a terrible thing, for instance, to be accused of serious fraud or or of a very serious physical assault. But in those cases, when a person is charged, they do, they are named at the time that they're charged and they go through the court system and either are acquitted or uh, convicted. So there, there is a real dilemma for the criminal justice system because we want our justice to be done in public and still where a person is accused of a sexual crime in some way they are deemed more deserving of protection than of any other type of crime so that's at the level of being accused it actually works for us in ireland i think because it means that if everybody remains anonymous in the way our court system is set up right now the victim is under a bit less pressure but there is a real question i mean i have to ask myself this question the whole time and i'm a lawyer i work in a victim's rights organization and i still say to myself is it right that those who are accused of sexual offenses get this 
added protection that they would not get in any other type of crime. Because the way it started off in Ireland was because there was such a fear that people would falsely report rape and sexual violence that it was really done for the defence or for the protection of the accused person rather than the victim. So there is still a dilemma around that as a question, why are these trials dealt with differently? On balance, I think we do it the right way. The, there is a whole different thing then in relation to naming the victim and having the victim's story understood. Lavinia's case was she was the first person ever back in 1991 to come out like that and to waive her anonymity. And she she took a huge step at that time. Um, and she she still says, because she spoke at the launch of our annual report earlier in the week, she says it was Jerry Ryan, the DJ to whom she spoke after the case, he was the first person to ask her her name. Apart from that, she was just a number. She was just carrying evidence. She was hidden away. It was all the, the, the person who was the personality was the man who had raped her, not she, the victim. So as a result of her stepping forward in that time, now nearly 30 years ago, we got a system whereby in serious crimes and now in all crimes, the victim gets to say what the impact of the crime was on them. And in the case where the sentence was, in that case, appallingly uh, lenient, the law was also changed following that case so that the prosecution can appeal a sentence that's too lenient. But what is really interesting is how how little development there is of the voice of the victim in our system, in our justice system. There was a time way back hundreds of years ago where it was all about the state was the person with the power. And then we saw over the last hundred years, you needed to equip the accused to tell their story correctly. uh, and that has been done and we have a very strong way of doing that in the Irish justice system. But we tend to just treat the victim as someone who is brought in, told give their evidence and then is ignored for the rest of the case. Not recognising that in these cases of intimate violence, the trauma and the damage to the victim can be lifelong and the impact is huge. So the, so the Lavinia Kerwick experience, which now has led to many, many more people speaking up is giving a better understanding to our society that that there are a number of parties involved in this type of crime. There is the state which wants to stop it because we don't want people committing rape and sexual assault on our streets. There is a person accused who must be entitled to a fair hearing and then there must be a recognition as there is in actually most of Europe that victims have rights and that those rights include that the justice system vindicating their them being heard properly. I think it I is, nearly forget what your question was at the start. Yeah, no, but I think you dealt with it very, very well there because, it, like, it's, it's a very sort of complex issue as well. And I mean, what I'm always interested in is I spoke to an academic recently, and this was in the context of the rise of the far right, and she was saying the idea should always be when somebody is persecuted and when somebody is being spoken about and othered and that kind of thing, that as journalists and as media people, we should be shifting the attention to the victim. 
So in the yeah. case of, say, we'll take for an example the Belfast rape trial there, there was an awful lot said about uh, the two rugby players involved, uh, but very, very little was said about the victim. And my point to you w- would be that her name is not known. So it's very hard for us to have a personal relationship with her or to have a personal opinion of her the way we would have Lavinia Kerwick because she hasn't come forward in the media. Now, by no means am I sort of demanding that rape victims or victims of sexual mm-hmm. violence come forward and do that. But what I'm saying is that on a human level, it is easy easier for us to identify with you know Jerry Ryan asked Lavinia Kerwick her name she was able to identify herself and it's a name that everybody of our age like it resonates with us today the article is in the Irish Times because of uh, the report that you released today and we remember the visceral feeling around the sense of injustice that cropped up and for many of us it was the very first time the fact that she chose to go on that and that it happened and it became a media thing it made it so much more powerful the personal stories of people and again if you read any local paper in America there was a a newspaper mogul who used to say names 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 tell me the stories of people not of events tell me the stories of people but would you like to see any specific changes made in the law or around how we we handle cases and you know keep in mind social media and that kind of thing would you like to see any changes there yes so next week we will be sending in a long list Um, It's our Santa wish list for Christmas (laughs) in relation to how the justice system should operate. There are so many changes we need to to accomplish. So, so for instance, well, let me just deal with a couple of the really big ones. Um, And one of them is in, in cases of rape, there's a very specific element that I cannot think of another type of crime where it comes up. But most rapes worldwide and in Ireland, are committed between two people who know each other, um, not by a stranger. And in some ways, the rape of somebody by a stranger or by somebody they don't know, is it's the case that will make the headlines, but it's the unusual case. More often than not, it's somebody known to the victim who rapes them. And it could be their intimate partner, it could be their their parent, it could be a brother, it could be a sibling, a, a relation, it could be a workmate, it could be a friend. And, and that makes it particular. Most of the time when your phone is stolen or uh, you're assaulted, it's by someone you don't know that well, so, you know, so, and the evidence is easier. So here are two people who know each other. That's one thing. Also, in those cases, it's often a question of was the sex consensual because in Irish law the the law is that if sex is not consensual it's rape I know the Swedish law has moved in that direction this year as well uh, but it is that so so we say if sex is consensual where it is free and voluntary Mm. and if it is consensual it's fine if it's not consensual it's rape so it is really really important that the jury who is asked to to hear the case understands whether there is consensual sex, whether consensual sex took place. There would be no court case if it was a case that the victim wasn't saying it wasn't consensual. The victim is normally saying this was not consensual. I did not agree to that. I may have agreed to some sexual activity. I did not agree to sex. And the accused person is very likely saying it was consensual Mm -hmm. for these reasons. Um, but one, so so really, in a sense, there isn't a, a whole lot of law needed for that. What you're asking is the common sense of the jury to establish: is there a reasonable doubt 
as to whether it was consensual because if there's a reasonable doubt and the jury thinks it might reasonably have been consensual they must acquit the accused and if it was not consensual they must convict the accused but in those cases you have two people presenting private intimate evidence only known to themselves and the other person to a jury and one of them the accused person has a team of experienced expert lawyers who know all the law, who are in the courts every day, who run these cases time and again, who've won cases more than they've lost them, and that's why they've been asked. And they are the free legal aid team for the accused person. Mm. And on the other hand, you have the victim of the crime who knows nothing about the case apart from her own state, normally hers, but it could be him too, but knows their own statement and a little bit maybe around it, but they don't even know the whole prosecution case and they certainly don't know what the defence case is. They may never have been in a courtroom before and they are going to go in and talk about the most intimate, private areas of their lives possible without legal support for the most part. Mm. There's one tiny area where they might have legal support, but for the rest of the time they don't. Now, both sides will be advised to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. But I know from practice as a lawyer that when I was trying to work out with my private clients what the truth was, I would be saying something like, uh, I, I see your statement. What do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? Not to coach them, but to find out What is the full story so that they can tell the full story to the court? That does not happen here. So you have a huge inequality between the accused who is who needs to tell the truth because they should be acquitted if they need to be. Mm -hmm. But they're well supported. And the lonely place that the victim is in standing up before strangers telling their story without any of the supports available. So one of the big changes we would like to see is support for victims during that time where the only question is what you could call a swearing match. It's more nicely called a conflict of oaths, but it is a case where you're asking for equality in relation to that. We may not get it now, but I'm absolutely satisfied over the next 5, 10, 15 years, we will have to get it because what is happening at the moment is that people are coming out of court who've been, who've given their evidence, who've made the complaint, who've given their evidence, who've come out of court, even with a recognition that their story was right and the accused is convicted, even then they're saying that the court system was like being raped all over again. So we must support people better in the court system. And that's one huge change because actually, I think more people are talking now. Lavinia was the first. But if I look even over the past two or three years, the level at which people are beginning to recognize, actually it's mostly women, but people are beginning to recognize that the victim is never, ever, ever responsible for a crime of sexual assault or rape. And they are coming out and they are saying, hear me too, I want my story told. I want people to know that this is what it is like to be subjected to rape or other sexual assault. Mm. 
It's a it's a fascinating thing, but I just want you to clarify one uh, thing for me, yeah. right? The, the person, the victim in this case, right? Say if uh, in a rape case, they are basically legally they are only a witness in the courtroom, yes. right? So they they have no right to legal representation. They don't have a barrister that can ask questions on their behalf. The prosecution does, and if the prosecution yes. decides to ask questions, but the prosecution is by no means uh, beholden to them to do anything that they want. The prosecution runs its own case. That's correct, the right? Prosecu- the prosecution runs its own case and it it lives in dread of um, uh, the defense saying that they coached a witness. Yeah. So the prosecution will line up all of their witnesses and they will they will just say, you go in and tell your story. I can't talk to you about your story because I would look like I was coaching you. Yeah. But all the other witnesses for the prosecution, the police, the forensic expert, uh, the whoever it is are the are the witnesses. They're all experienced. The police go in and give evidence every day. They're trained how to give evidence. Yeah. They know they have their supports back at the barracks mm. or the station wherever they're going. The forensic uh, patho- whoever is doing the forensics on the case, they are trained how to give evidence and they have their supports back. Apart, from, we can give psychological support in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. We run a team of volunteers who will go to people who will go with people to court, who will show them around the court in advance, who will kind of tell them, you know, this is what it is. But we too must be really, really careful as psychological support, not to tell them, not to talk about the evidence they will be given because we will be accused of coaching them as well. So, so for the most part, this witness alone is an amateur mm. in a whole, uh, in a whole room of professionals yeah. and the jury are also amateurs who are hearing the case and making the decisions but they are looking at two people and one of them is much better prepared to tell their truth than the other and what i suppose what i see as as essential in some way is to recognize that if the jury doesn't hear the victim properly because the victim is petrified yeah. and doesn't want to you know they they are facing their abuser. They are facing a team of lawyers. They they are they are just talking about things that are too private, really, mm. to talk about, except in this context. And and it is not fair to the court system or to justice where they are not telling their story in the same way to the jury that they're hearing it from the other side. Time to remind you that this is a listener-supported podcast and that I have plenty of goodies set for delivery over Christmas. If you're listening to this sometime in July, that's going to make no sense to you whatsoever. Everything I put out is free, but if you can contribute even a few dollars a month, it makes it easier for me to take you behind the scenes of media and journalism and to report on certain cases that would otherwise be left in the dark. Go to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm and support me if you can. Many victims feel that you know that going forward, being part of a case like this and being in the media spotlight is almost as as invasive as the attack that put them in that position. But in bringing these things to the surface in the media, it sort of creates or facilitates a discussion around sexual violence. What can we as journalists and people like me do to help victims to be able to tell their stories? You know, can we change the way we report on these things? Is there anything we should be more sensitive to in your experience? Yes. Yes. So uh, any anyone who tells their story to the media will say that there is a vast range of ways in which people hear it. Mm. Um, and so, for instance, some people will want the victim to repeat 
all the gory details of the events of the night first yeah. and will not be that interested in the impact on them. Mm. Uh, they'll want to know uh, what. So so it's a question of how. So so we do have guidelines. They're not good enough. We need to improve the guidelines. But but the things that um, I think journalists can do is understand, first of all, what they are what they are investigating and they're investigating a crime where the where the victim of the crime is never ever ever the person responsible so there are a whole lot of questions that are inappropriate to to ask in terms of um, asking them why didn't they run away why didn't they yell um, why, how much did they have to drink? Although that may be relevant in some other way, but uh, just uh, what, why were they dressed like that? Did their parents know they were going out? So questions that tend to focus on the behavior of the victim when you're looking at the story of the crime of sexual violence. Um, and, and then I think as to understand that a journalist would always report if they saw someone with two broken legs, they would say, as a result of an assault, they would say, mm. and the person has two broken legs and it's going to be months before they're able to go back to work. But very often the problem will be that journalists simply don't understand the level of trauma and how it can impact on somebody's lives. Uh, like Lavinia Kerwick there, within a day of the rape, she started, uh, anorexia hit her, you mm. know, so that like it is... And, and that but, and that was a very sudden and very visible outcome in some ways. So many people suffer trauma and hurt um, and often they won't even be able to talk about the issue at all to anyone. But where they do talk about it, to recognise that that is part of the story as well, in the same way that two broken legs would be part of the story of a physical assault. Mm. Um, and then I suppose the other part of that is uh, people will often say, well, look, if they were uh, if they were that upset about it, they would have reported it immediately. They would have spoken about it immediately. That's not the way trauma operates in people's lives. So it's just that understanding. You're talking about crime that any of us would find hard to talk about on any given day. It's the kind of sexual behavior you only talk about in very limited circumstances often only with your partner the kind of thing you wouldn't discuss with a parent perhaps or friends or whatever even if it's even if it's consensual so to recognize that this is an area which is vastly underreported and the reason it's vastly underreported and underdisclosed is because people find it so hard to talk about it because people blame themselves for it happening in the first place and because they dread the reaction they're going to get from people when they do disclose it. I do believe we are coming to an age, though, where people are learning more that it is that it is not their problem. It is not their fault and that there are a lot of other people out there in the same position. One of the most powerful things I ever heard was a female journalist saying uh, she worked as a war correspondent and she started a speech that I heard one time by saying the first time you're raped is the worst. And there wasn't, yeah. you could hear a pin drop because she had no, there was no shame in this. She wasn't standing yeah. up there saying, I'm ashamed that this happened to me. Yeah. I'm angry. She said she was angry about what happened to her. But she said the first time was the worst. And it stuck with me as being this, that she was going to get up there and she was going to tell us her story. But if we shift the focus from the victim slightly, a lot of the time when you see, say somebody is convicted and they're named in the, in the press in Ireland or anywhere else, right? And we see them described as being a monster, as being yeah. th this kind of thing. Now, I've always 
always wondered, and this is, I'd love to hear what you think about this, is that helpful? Because what we know about men, and it's often men who do rape, is that this is, you know, they are the guy in the golf club or the football club or the guy who works alongside you at the factory and that kind of thing. So is that kind of discourse, by turning them into monsters and saying they're not like us, is that helpful or unhelpful? I would say it's it's mainly unhelpful. It is unhelpful because exactly as you say, rapists are the people around you normally. They are not the the, the evil monster uh, stalking the land. Mm. Uh, but that that's that's tabloides, I think, yeah. uh, to a great extent. Uh, but and it happens again then when a sex offender is convicted and starts their sentence, gets out of jail. You'll see the headlines again: evil monster stalks the land um, uh, all over again. So yeah. that language is not helpful, uh, and it isn't. It doesn't recognise that you could be talking about somebody's brother. Mm. Um, I wonder if it's worth, uh, I mentioned there Lavinia Kerwick and how the fact that, you know, she became a person to us when she named herself yes. on the radio. Is it worth us as journalists looking at the perpetrators of these crimes and trying to find out? Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that we try to excuse these crimes, but in trying to learn more about the person and what gives them the sense of entitlement to go and to commit these acts, or is that something that you're going to give them fuel for the fire to feel sorry for themselves? Would you rather they just be left as perpetrators traitors and as the guilty in this instance or would you like to see more about them and what led them to do these things in the media yes except that i think probably that's true of all types of crime when Mm. you look and and you look at at people and you go why did they end up committing crime and somebody beside them or next door to them did not you know so that's Mm. kind of a normal line of inquiry so it's probably worth looking at but pretty well and i can't be sure because i can't generalize about everything but if you take it that uh, 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 the studies that have been done in the area of gender-based violence in general sexual Mm -hmm. violence domestic Mm -hmm. violence uh, uh, forced marriages um, uh, honor brides this kind of all those areas where gender is part of the mix Mm -hmm. uh, in relation to the violence there is almost always an abuse of power. Mm. So it is, of course, always interesting to look to see how did that imbalance of power happen? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a regular feature, all right, in relation to it. You will often see it where somebody is killed in a, in a domestic violence situation, yep. that the question will be, why, why did the perpetrator do that? Mm. Um, and and that has been indeed there's there's a there's a, always a lot of focus on that because people are puzzled sometimes nobody actually wants to be called a rapist yeah. it's not something that anyone wants to be and so i do think other people in the media which is very often mainly men will look to see what makes that person a rapist mm. in some ways i think it is much more necessary now just for a while to leave the spotlight on the victims and say what about the victim like what power imbalance was there or how could our society have facilitated it so that that 
abuse didn't happen. Because so often it's not one instance of abuse, it's abuse over time. It's something that starts off as a little bit of verbal sexual harassment, works up to groping, works up to something else. uh, uh, and, And somebody becomes more and more abused, more and more afraid, and then uh, rape will happen. Most rapes won't even be reported. There is something about it, but I think you would, wherever you look, you will see that where uh, rape and sexual assaults happen, there is somebody abusing their power over some other person. And it is, why is that person not, a, why are they not being treated equally? And that's really where we need to look and say, how do we change our society a little bit so that there's more equality? And so one of the things I would say that coming out of that set of questions is the need to educate both young boys and young girls about what consensual sex looks like, how how porn that they see on their smartphones is not real and is not what makes a healthy relationship Um, and in Ireland we're very slow to talk to our young people about what makes a healthy relationship what's right what's wrong morally and also criminally so uh, a lot of the uh, people that say if I'm out talking about this a lot of the parents would tremble uh, that their children could be harmed really without somebody even meaning to Um, or that they could harm somebody without really meaning to as well. So I think it's a question of empowering people to have less of that unequal balance that is at the root of so much sexual violence. I've been working for a few years with self-defence courses for women solely based around yeah. these things and it struck me about two or three years ago that the best thing I can do in terms of teaching women self-defence is not anything I say to them but it's what I say to the boys and to the young men yeah. around me and how I act around them you know but yeah. on on that very question if I was to give you the choice of being the Minister for Justice or the Minister for Education to change these things which role would you choose and why? That's a great question uh, I Probably, I would choose being Minister for Justice because the need is so immediate to fix a lot of things uh, in that system from the time a person go, thinks about reporting it as a crime. Mm. And, and I think because as, as Minister for Justice, if I could get that reporting and, um, and prosecution system correct from day one right to the end, our whole society would be safer. And I would like to think I'd have a good enough relationship with my colleague in the Ministry for Education to be able to show them the need, because we see, even in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, we see that a lot of the victims of sexual violence are getting younger and younger. And the people who carry it out are getting younger and younger. So as Minister for Justice, I'd be able to say to my colleague in education, you've got to do something because the kids are are committing these crimes and they're committing vicious crimes and you need to sort it. Finally, um, there's high profile cases that come before the courts all the time. There are young reporters coming before the courts all the time. It's not like it was 10, 15, 20 years ago when you have very experienced, seasoned reporters who know how these things work. Sometimes you're just sent down there by whatever website you're working for. How can journalists be better? Can they contact you at the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre? Where should they go to get information on how to be a better reporter about sexual violence? 
Right. So so they can. And we run short courses, say, for a day. And and journalists do come and do them, um, particularly, say, a, a journalist who might be going to meet uh, sex offenders in a prison setting or they might be going to meet young people who, yeah, who, who needed to talk about these kind of things. So journalists do come along and get the understanding of the trauma of sexual violence and also about the understanding of how it happens. But we need to do something more than that. And uh, it's just, I suppose, because so much has been happening in this area, we have not been progressing as, as we should. Already, the National Union of Journalists in Ireland has a set of standards for the reporting of sexual crimes, but they need a review. And I believe that the media companies and the journalists would be eager to themselves have a framework so that they would know what to do right because it is such a delicate and sensitive area so we need to progress a wide a more widely understood set of guidelines for those who are working in the media and we're working on that at the moment with some journalists with uh, some media companies as well to just try and see how do how do we make it the best possible so that people report it as well as they can. We won't stop people reporting it badly, but it would be a shame if somebody reported it badly because they didn't know any better. I think that could be said of all all of journalism when it comes down to it. Nolan yes. Blackwell, of, Chief Executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, thank you very much indeed for talking to me. Thank you, Phil. Some fascinating insights from Nolan there. My own personal impression is that things have improved, but that we still have a long way to go. That people who are victims of sexual violence still feel a sense of shame is something that we really need to deal with as both journalists and as a society. Until next time, be good to yourselves. (laughs) 